All right, would you uh, give a welcome to my friend Lucas Smith, who is going to be teaching Luke 8 today. Give him a round of applause as he comes. You grab that underneath. There we go. There we go. I'm grateful for Lucas, my friend, for many years. He and Antoinette have been a part of our church family for a long time, and many of you have seen him teach before, and so I'm grateful for him to lead us through Luke 8 this morning. Thanks, Jason. Morning, everybody. I am Lucas. Um, It is a a pleasure and an honor for me to be opening the word with you. Um, It's not... Not something I take lightly. I see that as a tremendous responsibility, and I'm, I'm grateful to, to be able to do it. So thank you for being here. I'm excited to, excited to open the word with you. Um, like Jason said, we are in a, in a series through the Gospel of Luke right now, and we are looking at the statements that Jesus made that kind of cause you to take pause um, and have to do like a little double take. And make sure you actually read that correctly. Like, did Jesus, did Jesus really say that thing that I just read? Um, and I gotta say that I'm, I'm so proud to be a part of a church that would take this approach to being in God's word. Like, we don't, we don't walk away from things when they're confusing. Uh, we lean into that and we, we make observations and we ask questions and that's how we're going through uh, when we find these statements of Jesus that make us take pause, we're thinking about what do we notice about that? Um, what do we wonder about that? We're making observations and we're asking questions. And that's really the crux of studying the Bible. That's really the crux of learning in general. And on that note, if, you are, if you're like me and my wife, if you work in education, particularly in this school district, you will know that this is how teachers are evaluated, noticings and wonderings. So like when administrators evaluate teachers, they go sit in their classroom and they watch them teach and then they have a meeting afterwards with the teacher and they have a list and it says, oh, I noticed this or I noticed you did that or I noticed a kid did that and I wonder why you did that or something like that. And um, it makes for fruitful conversations. There's some, sometimes where um, if, if an administrator was in my class during certain classes, um, the meeting afterward would go something like, wow, Lucas, I noticed that a student dove headfirst into a table (laughs) during your class, and I wonder how you still have a job here. You know, like, that's that's what it would be like if they were there every day, but um, they're not there every day, so. But anyways, um, I'm glad to be going through this series and taking a, um, a considerate look at some statements that could be confusing. So, am I on here, maybe? There we go. Was that me or you? Okay, we're, we're just going to have to, we're doing this, all right? Yeah. Okay. So, two statements that we're going to look at. Um, more noticings and wondering. So, we're in Luke 8. I was going through Luke 8 a couple weeks ago when I first started prepping for this, and I read through it a couple of times, and I thought to myself, man, I noticed that there is a lot of confusing and significant things that happen in Luke 8, and I wonder what I'm going to talk about. Um, There's a lot to talk about. Um, These are the two statements that I think we're going to spend most of our time in this morning, a statement that seems confusing. Jesus says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Peculiar. And a statement that seems mistaken, like a statement that seems like it's just not true. Stop wailing, Jesus said, she is not dead but asleep. 
These might be familiar stories. They'll make more sense when we get into the context of when he said that. I was talking to my friend Benjamin before the service, and he was like, I think I know which one you're going to talk about. So like, a couple people have asked me this week, like, which statement are you going to talk about? And the statement he mentioned was one that I was going to talk about, okay? Um, and I was going through it yesterday, and I was trying to talk through it in prep, and I realized that I did not have enough time to talk about all this stuff. So and we're going to focus on these two. Um, so we're going to start in verse 40 of Luke 8. So if you're following along in your Bible, you can go there. We're starting in verse 40. And I'm going to read through verse 48, okay? So Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, okay, stop. (laughs) Um, Where is he returning from? So in this chapter, if you've read the whole chapter, Jesus um, just had a really, I I don't know how to describe it, tense, um, powerful encounter with a demon-possessed man on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, And he has just come back from that to the other side Um, He was not the Gentile region prior to this, and he's just coming back, so now there is a crowd um, on the Jewish side of the lake that is waiting for him. So now Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Don't miss that. Crowds almost crushed him. That's pretty strong language, right? And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Your Bible might have a little footnote at the bottom of the page. Um, Sometimes it's included, sometimes it's not. But Luke makes a statement there that she had spent all she had, all of her worth, every penny that she has, she spent on doctors, and no one has been able to make her well. No one's been able to cure her of this this sickness, this bleeding. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and and pressing around you, pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Let's make observations, noticings. What do we notice? What do we observe? Um, I'm reading out of the NIV. It um, It says that the crowds almost crushed him. Some translations say that the crowds thronged Jesus. Like, it's, it's intense, right? Everybody's there. Everybody's crowding. Everybody's pressing. Like, everybody is trying to get a hand on Jesus. Um, and it's hard for them to even move through wherever, wherever they're walking through. And this woman is desperate, okay? A little bit of context here. This bleeding condition that she had would have made her ceremonially, ritually unclean. So she is not allowed to take part in any... Um, community processions or anything like that. Like she's an outcast. She's she's ostracized. Um, she's desperate. She's desperate, and she's been this way for twelve years. She's been enduring this. She's broke. She's spent everything she's had, 
Um, interestingly enough, Luke is the only gospel writer that says that she spent everything she has on doctors, and Luke himself was a physician, so he knows how that goes. Like, she's spent everything she's had. She's desperate. She's trying to keep her condition concealed from everybody because, because, um, like I said, she's, she's, she's ostracized. And in, according to their customs, if she touched somebody, that would then make that person unclean just in the same way that she is. So she is, she is trying to conceal her condition from everybody there, including Jesus. Um, some of the other gospel writers make a note that the woman has this idea. She says to, I think it's in Mark's gospel, where he says, the woman told herself, if I could just touch the edge of his garment, probably familiar with this. She tells herself, if I could just touch the edge of his garment, I would be healed. So she has this idea, I don't need, I, he doesn't need to talk to me, I don't need to talk to him. I don't need to tell him what happened. All I need to do is get in there, touch him without anybody knowing, and I'll be healed. She's utterly desperate. And the disciples are confused when Jesus starts to ask, like, who touched me? Because, again, the crowds are pressing against him. Everybody's there. Everybody's trying to get a hand on Jesus. And she gets in there. She sneaks her way up and just touches the edge of his cloak, and he stops he stops, and it's probably, it would probably have been a strange scene for the disciples, and really everybody there, because it's a crazy scene, they're pressing against him, it's probably loud, there's a commotion, and then all of a sudden he stops. Who touched me? And Peter's like, everybody touched you. What are you talking about, who touched you? Do you see what's happening around us? Like, they're pressing in, man, like, everybody is touching you. How can you say, who touched you? And he says, someone touched me, I know that power has gone out from me. And that's a unique statement. There's no other place in the Gospels where Jesus gives a, it, there's an implication that he is like, he can feel power going out of him or something like that. It's a peculiar statement. It's a peculiar statement. So why did he say that? We're gonna, we're gonna zero in on that. But a couple more observations here. Like I said, he seems to be unaware of who touched him. Like he's kind of saying, who touched me? I don't, where are they? I don't know. Like what happened? Who touched me? Yet he knows that he is healed or power has gone out from him. He knows something happened, or at least that's the appearance he's giving off. And then as we'll see at the end, Jesus draws the woman out of her hiding. He invites her to come forward, and, and we'll, we'll take a look at how he does that. A question, or two questions. Did Jesus really not know that the woman had touched him? He's like, who touched me? But he doesn't say, she touched me. Did he really not know who touched him? And why does he say that power went out from him? What's the point of that? And why would he allow her to be put in such an embarrassing situation? We'll get to the second question here in a minute. I want to focus on the first question. Why did Jesus, or did Jesus, really not know that the woman touched him? Was he really unaware of this? Um, it's not as clear in, in Luke's gospel, but Matthew and Mark, in their parallel account of this story, Matthew and Mark make it pretty clear that Jesus like looks at the woman. Okay, I think, it's, I think it's Matthew's account where it says that after Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? It says, he looked around at her who had touched him. And then he said, I know that power has gone out of me. So it's not like he stops the crowd and he's like, whoa, somebody touched me. Like, I just felt that. What happened? Where are they? Who is it? It would, it, would be like, it would be like if Jeremy touched me and I said, I'm looking at him. And I said, I know 
that power went out for me. I know someone touched me. And that's, that's the picture here. It's like Jesus looking at the woman. No one else sees her. No one else knows it was her. But Jesus is looking at her when he says, I know that power has gone out for me. So I think it's pretty clear that he knows, he knows who touched him. He knows what has happened. Um, and again, that, that statement, I know that power has gone out for me, we might think like, wow, that sounds kind of weird. Like he never really says anything like that elsewhere in the Gospels. I think that when he said that statement, um, our attention's not meant to be drawn to the idea, so to speak, of power going out from him. I think that when Jesus made that statement, he's trying to communicate indirectly yet plainly to this woman. Power went out for me. Like he's looking at her saying, I know what just happened. I know that power has gone out for me and I know that you're healed right now. He knows who touched him and he knows what happened. And he knows why that she came to him. So the second question, why would he allow her to be put in such an embarrassing situation? It appears that Jesus like waits for the woman to come forward and reveal herself before he kind of discloses to everybody there what has happened. In the story, um, he says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out for me, right? He's looking at her when he says that. And then in verse 47, it says, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed because like he's looking at me, he just told me, I know that what just happened. So she knows, I, he knows, he knows, I gotta come forward now. I gotta, I gotta tell everybody what happened. She comes trembling at his feet and in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. So she comes forward, imagine the fear. She comes forward trembling and has to explain both to him and everybody the, the exact thing that she had been trying to conceal. Jesus, I've been sick for 12 years. I have this, con- I'm, I've been bleeding, I'm, I'm, I'm unclean. I've been unclean, I don't have anywhere else, but I knew that if I could just touch you that I'd be healed. And I touched you and now I'm healed. And she's explaining this to everybody. And likely she's thinking, it's over for me. Because now everybody knows. Everybody that I just like brushed up against to get up to him in the crowd, now they know who I am. And they know that I just touched Jesus. Like to everyone else there, they think that now Jesus is unclean because she just touched him. So to everybody else standing there, she's unclean. She's done this outrageous thing to go and touch Jesus and make him unclean. It would have been horrifying. It would have been horrifying. But it it seems as though Jesus is like drawing her out to explain this to all the people and explain it to him. But after she explains herself, again, likely with tremendous shame and fear, Jesus says two things to her. He calls her his daughter, and he says, go in peace, your faith has healed you. When he calls her his daughter, strangely enough, this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus addresses a woman as his daughter. This is the only time, the only time he does it. This is the only person that has ever given that title from the mouth of Jesus. And he tells her that her faith has healed her, and she can go in peace. So why would he allow her to be put in such a seemingly embarrassing, shameful situation? I think that he was trying to draw her out 
not in order to shame her or to embarrass her, but to make abundantly clear to everyone there, and most importantly, to her personally, that she is now his daughter. She is clean. He is not unclean, but she is clean because he has the power to make her so. He wanted her to know that. He wanted everybody else to know that. So he does that like for her personal faith and her personal joy to say, no, you're, you're my daughter now. You're my daughter now. You can actually go in peace. And on the other hand, I think he's doing this like to save her public reputation too. He's making it clear to everybody there, she's clean now. She's clean now. He's redeeming her from all of the oppression, pain, suffering, everything that she has endured for so many years, the disgrace and humiliation that she's endured for so long, he's ensuring by telling everybody there who she is and what she is now, that she is clean. She's a a daughter of the Most High God. He's ensuring that she actually can go in peace after this this, um, encounter has concluded. This is, a, this is a touching, climactic, dramatic scene. It's a really famous story. Um, but it's kind of funny. In, in, the, in the narrative of the chapter, it's, it's really like tangential to the story that began at the beginning of what we started reading. Because meanwhile, Jairus is just standing there. Like the only reason Jesus was in the crowd was to go heal Jairus' daughter who's about to die. And then this thing happens. And Jairus is just standing there. Like this whole time, he's just waiting. I think sometimes we lose, we lose that perspective when we think about this story because the story of the bleeding woman is such a, such a phenomenal and important story. We forget that like Jairus is just standing there watching this happen. And he's probably thinking, that's great, she's your daughter. What about my daughter? What about me? Because now we're probably too late. He might be thinking, we're taking too long, Jesus. Come on, man. We got to go. Um, have you ever, I had this thought um, when I was thinking about this story. Have you ever had to wait for something like to the point of utter agony? Like to the point where you can feel it. You, can, you have like a physical experience of agony and waiting for something. Um, I think this is something that children experience a lot. Maybe I, I think about like trips to Hobby Lobby with my mom when I was a kid, where I'm just like, oh, oh my gosh. In my adult life, I asked Antoinette if I could say this, and she said yes, okay. In my adult life, this is trips to Target with my wife, okay. I don't know what happens when I walk into Target with my wife, but, you know, I could, it could be, I could be wearing, like, shorts and a T-shirt, and I walk into Target, and all of a sudden, I have cinder blocks for shoes. I'm carrying, a 50, like, 50-pound 50 dumbbells. I got chains around my neck, and I'm just like, I will get out of here someday, you know? And that, it's just like a battle. So much so that she doesn't even like it when I go to Target with her anymore because it ruins the experience for her. <laughs> You're just waiting for it to be over. And look, 
Antoinette and I call this heavy boredom. It's a joke we have with each other, like heavy boredom, like it's actually a weight. You're so bored. Um, and look, I know I'm an expert on boredom, okay? Because I was a high school math teacher, right? So like I, I know what it is to be bored and I know what it looks like when someone is waiting in agony for something, <laughs> all right? Because for a long time, I was the one that was dragging them through that thing, okay? Like I know what it looks like for someone to be bored. I put plenty of kids to sleep. Um, I put people to sleep on Sunday mornings preaching. I know I have. I've seen it. I've seen it. I don't think, I don't think we're there right now, but I know what it looks like to be bored. I know what it looks like to wait for something in agony. I don't know what it feels like because I've been to Target. Um, but I don't think I knew what Jairus was experiencing here. I don't think I know what that felt like. All jokes aside, like he is in agony. He is in agony, waiting for Jesus to finish this up so they can, they can get on to, to what he needs. So let's pick up the story. Starting in verse 49, we're going to get to another statement here. Remember, this was a statement that appeared to be like just plain wrong, just mistaken. So let's read the story and, and see what happens. Pick it up in verse 49, and we'll read through, uh, we'll read through the end of, uh, we'll read through the end of the chapter. Okay. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And Jairus is there. Like, what? A, come on, man, let's go. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, came and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Can you imagine what he felt. It should have been my daughter, right? We were on the way to get to her. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. Is he just wrong? Like, why, why would he say that? They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So again, let's make observations. Let's make noticings. Jesus tells Jairus to believe immediately after he just finished speaking to the woman. It says, while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, telling her, daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. Like As he's finishing that statement, someone comes and tells Jairus, it's over, she's dead. You know, leave Jesus alone. Jesus tells him to believe immediately after that has happened. So Jairus just saw that, right? Jairus just saw what happened with the bleeding woman. He was there. He saw the whole thing happen. Perhaps Jesus wanted him to see it. There's a group of people in the house that is mourning when they get there. There's a little, little bit of context here, something that I, I learned this week. Um, it says that when Jesus gets there, there's a bunch of people mourning and wailing, and there's probably music playing and lots of loud crying. And something I learned is that it's it was customary during this time for families to 
hire people to come mourn at the loss of a loved one. So likely, the people that were there were not actually like, connected to this family. They're probably hired, they're probably paid to be there and like, add to the ambiance of the mourning. Okay? So when he gets there, there's all this mourning, there's all this mourning and wailing. And then Jesus makes this statement that the girl is merely asleep while the people are, are sure that she is dead. And again, that, you know, you wonder, if he's divine, if he's God, wouldn't he know that she's actually dead? Like, why would he say that? Why would he say she is not dead, but asleep? Why would he say that? We're going we're to look at that in a minute. And after he says that, the group turns from their mourning to ridicule really quickly. Because, again, they're not actually mourning. Like, they're actors, so they go from wailing and mourning to he says he's not dead, and they're like, you're crazy, man. You're crazy. It says they're laughing at him. Some other translation says that they ridiculed him. like They were deriding him. It was condescending. It wasn't pretty. Luke doesn't make note of this, but in, in Mark and Matthew's account, before Jesus goes into the girl's room, he puts everybody out of the house. So all these people that are crying, right, and mourning, and then they're laughing at Jesus and making fun of him and, and deriding him, um, he kicks them all out. Luke doesn't say that, but Mark and Matthew make that clear, that he, he puts them out of the house. He brings in the child's parents and Peter, James, and John, and they go into where the where the girl's body is after he kicks everybody out. All three gospel writers that make account of this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make note that Jesus takes the girl by the hand before he speaks to her. So the picture is that he goes to her bedside. He's, maybe he's like kneeling down and he takes the hand of her body and he speaks to her. He says, my child, get up. Mark notes the exact word Jesus used, talithakum, um, Talitha literally is my child, little girl, um, but it was really more of a, one, one commentator I read, that word was actually more of a pet name, like it's a term of endearment. So literally it's little girl, but in our vernacular it might be more accurate to say like honey, sweetie, my child. So he comes in and speak, grab, takes her by the hand, speaks tenderly to her and lifts Lifts her up. And after making some noticings, here's the question, that statement, she's not dead but asleep. So the wondering that we have here, why would Jesus say that she's not dead? What did he mean? Is he wrong? Because that seems wrong. That seems mistaken. Why would he say that? Why would he say that she is not dead? If you've been around uh, Two Rivers for a while, you've probably heard Jason or somebody else talk about um, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, right? And this is something that we, we have to do, we have to rely on when we come to a statement that we're like, what, did he really say that? What, what, what's up with that? Many times when we come to those kinds of statements in the Bible, um, the answer is somewhere else in the Bible, so we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture and see if there's anywhere else 
in the Bible um, that would maybe shed some light on why Jesus would say this. So this story of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead draws a lot of similarities to another instance where Jesus raised somebody from the dead. There are three instances where this happens in the Gospels. We're going to go look at one of them, which again is a familiar story. It's in John chapter 11. It's the story when Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. So I don't have any slides for this. If you want to follow along, flip over to John chapter 11. This story starts at the beginning of that chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, through to the end, because it's kind of a lot of text, but we'll give you the flyover, and we'll, we'll zoom in on a couple things. So in John chapter 11, the story starts um, that Jesus gets word. Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick, okay? Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, are uh, recurring characters in the Gospels. They're friends of Jesus. It's described that Jesus loved them. Um, Jesus loved Lazarus specifically, um, he's friends with these people, so he gets word that Lazarus is sick, okay? So um, he resolves to go to him and go see him. They live in Bethany. Jesus isn't in Bethany when he hears this, so they're going to go see him. They're going to go see Lazarus. Um, and he tells the disciples, we're going to go see Lazarus, and he uses the words... Um, in chapter 11, verse 11, if you're looking at John, it says, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Same language. It's the exact same language. He said Jairus' daughter was asleep, and he said that Lazarus is asleep. So he's using the same language. And then the disciples His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Which I just think is hilarious. I think it's hilarious. They're like, no, no, Jesus, if he's sick, just let him sleep, man. That's that's what he needs. Like, they're so confident, you know. (laughs) Jesus, I know you're new to this thing, but if if he's sick, let him sleep. That's what he needs. And John kind of like walks it back. Right after that, right after that statement, um, in verse 13, John writes, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So John like walks it back and he's like, Yeah, we we didn't know what he was talking about. We we were wrong. We thought he was talking about actually sleeping, but he was talking about him actually being dead. We we were wrong. So Jesus says plainly, Lazarus is dead. Like first he says he's asleep, the disciples don't get it, so then he just says in no unclear terms, guys, he's dead. <laughs> so in both cases, he says Jairus' daughter is asleep, he says Lazarus is asleep. The disciples don't get it, so he's like, guys, Lazarus is dead. I think this is pretty compelling reason to, to convince us that Jesus knew Jairus' daughter was dead. Because it's the exact same scenario, right? He knows that she's dead. He knows what's going on. So this shows us that Jesus knew she was dead, but that wasn't our question. The question is why? Why does he say that she's dead? Because again, that's still seemingly mistaken. So why does he say that? I think what happens next in the story of Lazarus might help answer that question. So um, Jesus and his disciples go to Bethany, where Lazarus is where his sisters are, 
And when he arrives, both Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and a crowd of people come to him and they're pleading with him. Why weren't you here? You could have, you could have saved him. And it's a really emotional scene. It's one that many of us are probably familiar with. There's, there's tears, there's crying. This is the story where it says that Jesus wept, which is something we give a lot of attention to because he weeps with his friends in their sorrow, in their sadness, in their pain. He's there with them, weeping. So we give a lot of attention to that, and rightfully so. We should give a lot of attention to that. But this is not the only uh, emotion that Jesus experiences in, in this story. Okay? So, and there's some things that we can see with a little more of a careful eye. In verse 33, John chapter 11, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then he weeps. And then again in verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. So two places, verse 33 and 38, it says he's deeply moved and troubled in spirit. Um, That translation might not catch the full weight of what Jesus was um, expressing in in that moment. The Greek word there that is translated deeply troubled in spirit, moved, is a word that meant to snort and snarl with anger, to have indignation upon something. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the New Testament called the message, if you're familiar with that, kind of gets at this. The message translation says that a deep anger welled up within him. Like these words are, it was usually, these words that are translated in this way in our Bibles were usually used to describe like a horse snarling, snorting when it's angry. To have indignation upon something. So when Jesus is approaching Lazarus' tomb, yes, he is weeping, but he's mad, like like an animal. So the question is, it begs the question, what's he mad at? What's the object of his indignation? Because when an animal is mad, when an animal's snorting, it's usually looking at something, right? So what is Jesus looking at here that is making him Snort and snarl with anger. It's death. It's human death. And the suffering of his people. He's approaching the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. And all of his friends are there weeping. He is approaching this thing and he is mad at it. He's not mad at them for weeping. He is angry at the suffering of his people. He's facing death. He's facing human death. This is the ultimate culmination of sin and evil and darkness and brokenness on his creation. The ultimate culmination of human suffering. The ultimate consequence of sin. This is the thing that Jesus came to destroy. 
This is the thing that Jesus would soon trade his life to undo. And he is looking at it in the face. And he's mad. Snorting with anger. Through tears. The story ends, you probably know, they roll the tomb away. Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. Why did he say that Lazarus was asleep? Why did he say that Jairus' daughter was asleep? Because he had come to destroy, defeat their death. And he has the power to do it. I think he says that they're asleep to make us understand and make the people understand that we're there, that with him, death is no more than sleep. He has the power to wake you up. and defeat this thing that he hates. The stain of sin on his creation. So let's go back to Luke 8. Let's go back to Luke 8, understanding what we can take from the story of of Lazarus. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that he was dead, that she was dead. We know from Lazarus' story that when Jesus is confronted with death, he's brought to tears and anger. Again, not not at the people that are around, but at the stain of sin culminating in death. So he kicks them out. He kicks them out. Is he being harsh with them? Is, like, is he being harsh with them in his anger? I don't think so. I think he, is, he has come to destroy this thing. He's come to defeat this thing, death. And he's not going to let anybody get in the way of that. And again, these people are hired mourners. They're hired mourners. They really have the exact opposite attitude of Jesus in this situation. Like, they're not actually mourning, and Jesus actually is. Like, Jesus actually mourned with Mary and Martha for Lazarus. I think it's safe to assume that he was mourning the death of Jairus' daughter, too. They're not actually mourning, but Jesus is near. We have a God who weeps. We have a God who steps into suffering with us. And they were not doing that. And they didn't see Jesus' power to undo this this thing. He was determined to overcome human death. He wouldn't let anybody keep him from doing so. So he takes the girl by the hand, speaks tenderly to her, honey, it's time to get up. He goes from anger and rage and tears to tenderness, kindness, in lifting the girl up. So again, why did, she, why did he say that she was sleeping? Why did he say that she was sleeping? Think about all that. Why did he say that she was sleeping? It's because with him, death, death is no more than sleep. When Jesus has you by the hand, death is no more than sleep. And he has the power to overcome it. <clears throat> so let's, let's zoom out for a second. Big picture, big picture. 
This is a story of Jesus taking a dead girl by the hand, lifting her up out of death. And it's a, it's a beautiful story. It's a story of her waking, it's a story of him waking her up. But he didn't just come to wake her up. He didn't just come to save her from death. How's he going to do that for all of us? How's he going to win that battle for everybody? Because he can't be at all of our deathbeds. How's he going to take us all by the hand? How's he going to rescue from death on a grand scale? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, fast forward, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the religious leaders are heaping insults upon him as he's hanging there. They say, look, he could save others, but he couldn't save himself. Maybe they were thinking about Jairus' daughter. Maybe they were thinking about Lazarus. He could save them, but he couldn't save himself. And they say things to him like, if you're the son of God, come off the cross. Come down and save yourself. These are things that the gospel writers note that they were saying to him as he's hanging on the cross. He cannot save himself. Never have more plainly incorrect words ever been spoken. Couldn't save himself, really? No, 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 he, he wouldn't. He wouldn't save himself. It's not that he couldn't save himself. He wouldn't save himself. Because when he was hanging on that cross, he was dying my death. He was dying our death. When they tell them, get off the cross. If you're the son of God, get off the cross, save yourself. No, you need me. You need me to hang on this cross. I will not. All of sin, all evil, all wrong, everything dark and broken was on his head. And he drank the whole cup. Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he took it. He took it so that we don't. First Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins. Suffer he did, once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. How's he going to save from death on a grand scale? How's he going to take me by the hand? He hung on that cross. And he took it all. Um, near the end of the third book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King, there's this scene where um, his character Sam Gamgee has just come face to face with Gandalf, the wizard. And up to this time in the story, Sam, is, Sam thinks that Gandalf is dead. He thinks he's long dead. So I'm going to read this quote from you. From, I'm going to read this quote for you. Sam comes face to face with Gandalf, who he thinks was dead. 
He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to become untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. Everything sad is going to become untrue, because Jesus hung on the cross and walked out of the tomb. And all of evil and wrong was on his head, and he left it behind. And a great shadow has departed. Because he conquered the cross, because he conquered death, when I die, might as well be a nap. Worship team, you guys can come back up. I'll pray for us. Lord, we thank you for stories like this that show us your power, your kindness, your goodness, and your strength to conquer death and evil. Lord, we ask that um, we would have faith in your work finished on the cross. Lord, that you take us by the hand and ask us to arise with you. We look forward to that day, God. Fill us with the hope of the glory of that day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.